0: Welcome to the Advice and Insights Podcast with David L. Bonson.
1: Hello and welcome to this week's Advice and Insights Podcast. This is David Bonson and I am the Chief Investment Officer and the Managing Partner of the Bonson Group and those of you who are listening to us for the first time, we do this podcast every week to just sort of tackle a particular issue in the capital markets and the investment markets and the global economy, something we think is important for investors to know and understand and appreciate. And and we also do a podcast every week called Dividend Cafe, uh, where we're doing a quick kind of run through uh, in 10 minutes or so of a whole bunch of different issues. This Advice and Insights podcast is meant to be focused on a deeper dive and one week we may cover the whole world of emerging markets and we may interview a portfolio manager, let's say, that we work with. And another week we may um, uh, uh, decide to tackle, do a deeper dive around the whole issue of trade and what's going on in the trade war and tariff threats and all those types of things. Um, so it varies week by week, but uh, we would just love it if you'd subscribe. It's available with all your Google Play and, and Apple, iTunes, um, uh, whatever your chosen way to go about doing it is. You can always access it through the website, of course, but we uh, love it if you subscribe directly to your podcast player of choice. And, of course, if you want to write us a great review, that helps as well as we go about building up the traffic for this uh Uh, this uh, entire idea. But um, I think I've said enough on the housekeeping and I want to get into the subject of this week's advice and insights, which is recapping the first half of 2018. It's been a uh, kind of surreal um, uh, beginning to the year. The first half of this year uh, has not been like the last several years. You know, we obviously know what it means when we have a really big up year or when you have a really big down year. And in this particular case, you know, you kind of just have this incredible flatness in the market. But nothing feels particularly flat to investors because uh, things have been sort of all over the map. And we'll start over the map with what took place in the month of January, which was, you know, really a huge... um, move higher in risk assets, particularly in stocks, U.S. stocks, emerging markets, um, a little less so in European and Japanese markets, but nevertheless, really big positive numbers. It curtailed off near the end of the month. So even though the month still ended up big and substantially so, that number didn't hold uh, all the way through the end of the month at the same level. But then um, we, we go into February, and just to kind of walk through the timeline of things, we had a 1,500-point uh, down day after the wage growth number of January came out. Wages had grown year over year 2.9%, and that was uh, speculated to be this potentially inflation-fearing, uh, you know, uh, catalyst. And then you had uh, what I wrote at the time uh, was a clear technical breakdown of markets, algorithmic trading taking over, all the bids being taken away, but sells still having to get filled. And so market prices dropping and, and normalization came back in almost instantly. Um, and markets actually through February began to recover back near their all-time highs, not quite where they were a few weeks earlier, but still nevertheless, uh, very high level in the S&P 500 and in the Dow. And near the end of February, we went to kind of the second tier of the, the sort of troubled, volatile period, for lack of better terminology. And that was the um, uh, trade war and trade conversation threats. Um, faking, pretending, really doing—what will he? Won't he? This sort of phase of what's going on with, with uh, the Trump administration's trade policy, and and uh, began with these threats against steel and aluminum producers, and and then that kind of went away to some degree. To it came back a bit, but then since then, uh, the different up and down movements around the Trump administration's attempt to renegotiate certain treaties and trade agreements with various trading partners, global trading partners, has added a great deal of volatility into the market. And uh, at the same time that was happening, we have dealt with a couple more interest rate hikes from the Federal Reserve on top of the, more, on top of the several that they had done last year you get a Fed funds rate now back up around the 2% range. Uh, Keep in mind, in December of 2015, not exactly ancient history, it was 0%. So we've now had, you know, 8, 25 basis point rate hikes that have moved us back into this range. And they are still telegraphing at least one, if not two more by the end of this year at the same time that they've begun to reduce their balance sheet. And I use that term all the time and it's something we all in our business know about, talk about, deal with, understand, but it's funky terminology that I don't want to take for granted. Every listener understands. But the Federal Reserve, after the financial crisis, added a ton of assets to their balance sheet. But see, the way it works is the Fed was buying those assets with money that doesn't exist because that's what they are. They're a central bank and they're dealing with the management of the money supply. And they're dealing they control the excess bank reserves and they have policy tools that enable them to try to affect a certain outcome by controlling short-term borrowing rates and by controlling what level of reserves are kept at banks and things like that around how they wanna kind of manage the monetary aspect of the economy. So we went from about a $600 billion asset balance sheet at the Fed to over $4 trillion. And that came about as a result of quantitative easing one, quantitative easing two, and quantitative easing three, the last one being the big daddy of them all. And so you've heard the terms QE1, QE2, QE3. No one knew what quantitative easing was. No one knew what the acronym initials quanti- you know, QE meant. And, and they became kind of very familiar lexicon for a lot of American uh, media, certainly financial media. And, and within you know the investment and uh, economic universe. Well, now they want to reduce that balance sheet, but they don't want to go sell bonds. So what they could do is reduce it by literally going in the marketplace and selling these bonds that don't exist, which would have an immediately contractionary uh, impact and they'd be pulling money out of the economy. They'd be reducing liquidity. Um, in this case, all they're talking about doing is not Uh, uh, rebuying assets that mature. So some assets mature that they bought and they've been reinvesting those proceeds now, which is keeping their balance sheet running in place as opposed to doing new buying since they stopped QE3 in October 2014. They have not been adding to their balance sheet, but they had been letting it run in place by reinvesting assets that matured Now, they uh, have been uh, not reinvesting those proceeds, which obviously has the net effect of slowly reducing their balance sheet. Um, And it has not been a sizable amount of money. They're slowly but surely increasing the dollar level, five billion here, six billion there, eight billion there, and then they get up to 20 billion a month. And I think that through time, they wanna bring it down to about two and a half to three trillion. But when you're going at that clip of you know six billion, it was twenty billion soon, and it's a long time till you reduce the assets by by over a trillion dollars. But nevertheless, the Fed, in the course of raising rates a couple times and the slow reducing of their own balance sheet, is trying to tighten monetary policy. It reduces U.S. dollar liquidity, and what that means is that it is. Uh, For the policy objective of normalizing monetary policy, getting to a point where they believe the right amount of bank reserves exist, the right borrowing costs exist, to not stimulate bad investment behavior and to give them policy tools, should we actually see a slowdown in the future, normally they like to cut rates and you can't cut rates if they're at zero. Uh, well, that's at least what we believe here in the US. They actually did do it in Japan, but I, I'll save that conversation for another day. Maybe I should do a Advice and Insights podcast someday only on negative interest rate policy, but I digress. So um, along the way you, by, by basically taking away this put of Federal Reserve accommodation through their balance sheet, through interest rates, you end up getting a little support for risk assets because that money ends up getting parked into assets very often. There's a glut of liquidity that low interest rates create and it finds its way into real estate, it finds its way into business investment, it finds its way into stocks, it finds its way into assets that have a premium in return over that bo- low borrowing cost. and it's allegedly stimulative that's what they're attempting to do so in order to let this thing uh, kind of slow down a bit so that we don't end up with inflation they now need to kind of go the other way and that's what we're dealing with and so I'm not really commenting at this point on what I think is good and bad about the policy what I think was good or bad four or five years ago I though although that's a comment I'll make anytime anywhere I think we're dealing with a lot of this stuff now because they didn't deal with it earlier, but um, that, that is something I've talked about quite a bit and, and uh, is not really helpful at this point in time. So, the markets through March and then April and then May and in June all had periods of moving higher, all had periods of moving lower, but literally right now, through the halfway point of the year, we sit exactly where we were at the beginning of February. So you've essentially had now another five months of flat markets. And that's been the story of 2018 thus far. Um, The real winners uh, have been, I mean, primarily um, small cap stocks. Uh, You've had a tremendous move, about 10% in the Russell 2000. Uh, Which is the index of small cap? You have had about a 4% move in the mid cap index. Uh, The NASDAQ is up over 13% on the year, and that's driven by, um, you know, in some of the FANG names, a couple of them are only up only 13%, 14%, but a couple of them are up 50% and over 100%. And so you get a few names that are really skewing some of that NASDAQ performance um and and uh then you you look to the other asset classes and say geez the s p you know through the first half of year only up one to two percent the dow is down one to two percent um so the where there has been success it has been in some of the riskier aspects of the market that generally is the opposite when you're going to a troubling market it's the riskier stuff that's most vulnerable but this has not been a risk-off market where technology and emerging markets and small cap all got pummeled and everyone flew into safety. This has been a volatility-driven uh, kind of choppy, flattish market. When interest rates were rising, you saw utilities going down, you saw REITs going down. Now, as the longer end of the in- yield curve is sort of flatlined, that has that sort of stopped, and yet at the same time, Um, the rally has been primarily driven around some of the riskier uh, sectors. Um, So, in terms of the uh, positioning going forward for the rest of the year, there's sort of decision trees that that we have to look at. Do you believe interest rates are going to keep going higher? Well, let's say you do. Do you believe they're going to keep going higher at the low end of the curve? Well, uh, if you do, then obviously you don't want to be invested in short-term bonds. Most people believe that the risk exists of rates going higher, and yet the short end is likely not necessarily going to be the place that feels it the worst. If they, if you did, if you think that uh, the entire yield curve is going to go higher, or you think the fed will let the yield curve invert, then you'd want to avoid short duration bonds. But if you believe that we're near the end of the shorter term of the interest rate curve going higher, chances are lower duration makes more sense. Um, but to the degree that the long end of the curve, 10 years, 30 years, has stubbornly held in place now, with a 10-year yield in between 2.8 and 3% for you know months and months, um, it's entirely possible that the market is telling us. That this longer-term inflation fear is not the prevalent fear we have to deal with, um, and that a big move up of the tenure to three and a half, four percent, and this kind of secular cycle of rising interest rates may not actually be the big threat markets face. I'm I'm in that camp myself. I don't believe that's the biggest <clears throat> uh, risk markets face, and I and I'm a little perplexed by the assessment that kind of. Uh, defaults to that, um, we don't see the level of inflation, necess- and we do see a lot of counteracting and, and debt deflationary forces at play, and so uh, I, it makes sense to me that interest rates have normalized to some degree, but it doesn't make a lot of sense that they might move substantially higher from here, um, so that's something we have to continue to watch. But like I said, the notion of it being a real troubled year in the market, the fact of the matter is the consumer discretionary and technology are the leading performers year to date. Um, That doesn't sound like a big um, risk-off environment. Now the EFI, the MSCI EFI, the index for Japan, Europe, developed markets outside the U.S. So think of what is not the U.S. and what is not emerging markets. It's down 2.5% year to date. Um, and so it has not been an entirely risk on market either. Just because small cap is up, your international markets are not. Um, tech and energy are doing well, but consumer staples and telecom are not, uh, which has been you know really interesting in terms of trying to digest how investors and how risk appetites are flowing. Um, The muni index was down less than half what the bond aggregate index was down as supply and demand circumstances in the tax-free world is far different than it is in the treasury world. You have less issuance of new muni debt but an equal or growing amount of demand for tax-free product for investors. So that has kind of helped to stabilize the municipal market. Um, the S&P is down to a 16 times multiple overall. Stocks are based on earnings growth of over 20% in the first quarter, and we project another 20% in the second quarter. Um, you're looking at only 16 to 17 times multiple, where it had been you know, around 19 times. I would point out that the emerging markets index is right now at only an 11 times multiple. The P-E ratio sitting at only 11 times in emerging markets, the reason being prices are so low. Do we believe that means that there are a value there? Yes, we absolutely do. But why are prices there so low? Because basically the the, uh, fears exist about a dollar liquidity problem, that emerging markets who have borrowed uh, in dollars will not be able to access the dollars they need. And, uh, and, and that ends up having a trickle-down effect into their economies. Um, you have rising deficits and a tighter Fed, that means lower global liquidity and lower, excuse me, less global liquidity. And so that's a circumstance we have to deal with. The alternative space has been the better low risk, low volatility place to make money. Bonds have not been the great diversifier to equities this year, but alternatives have. And we've had some great success with some of our alternative strategies. Uh, but rather than getting to individual hedge fund names and so forth, I'll leave, I'll leave it there. Um, but certainly you're welcome to reach out and ask uh, about those things on a more detailed basis. Uh, the consensus view right now um, is that rates are going higher. I don't believe it. The consensus view is that emerging markets will be troubled. And that is a conclusion drawn around the premise of rates going higher. And, and I think it's very possible emerging markets will continue to face that volatility. And then a big consensus, but I wouldn't say it would be for that reason. And then the other big consensus view is that defensive stocks are bad. That your consumer staples, your telecom, your utilities that are lower beta, a little less exciting and risky names, that they're the places that are going to get hit the most. And from a contrarian standpoint, we disagree with this consensus view and what we think they all prove to be wrong. We took a big additional position in small cap at the beginning of the year. We're very glad we did. Um, I don't know how much that story is fully priced in, but we think the benefits of tax reform are going to continue to play themselves out. And so we would be bullish on tax reform and bullish on profitable small cap. But I will reiterate our earlier in the year caveat. We don't think that can be done with passive index small cap investing where so many companies lose money. We'd be active in our approach. So I'm going to leave it there as our recap of the first half of the year. We continue to watch these rising oil prices. It's so funny how now oil prices going up are said to be this big concern in the economy where, of course, you remember at the beginning of 2016 and throughout 2015, they talked about what a negative it was, that there was perhaps this big indication of global demand drawing down. And in fact, um, uh, what I can tell from media analysis is that oil prices going down is bad for the economy and oil prices going up is bad for the economy. You tell me if that's a sensible analysis. The fact of the matter is, it's the reasons things go down and the reasons things go up you have to look to to make an assessment. And uh, our, our uh, belief is that there is a tremendous investable story in the U.S. energy sector over the next 10 years. So um, for the rest of the year, we continue to expect volatility around the trade war glut, uh, the trade war uh, controversy, and the necessary playing itself out of Fed normalization of monetary policy we would err uh, slightly on the side of caution and equity positioning, but would not be afraid to have small and emerging markets within that. We are not FANG investors. We have no idea when this stops. It can go on in perpetuity, but it is a momentum carry trade right now, which is far outside what we believe in doing and would not be buying stocks that are trading at 250, 300 times earnings. Um, and instead see good value in some of the names that underperformed in the first half of the year in the consumer staples or telecom sectors. So with that said, reach out anytime uh, to the Bonson Group, any questions you have, uh, write us a review on advice and insights and, and uh, understand that we do these things, so our clients will receive our best thoughts and ideas and uh, introduce you to the worldview that we have at the Bonson Group. Thank you for listening to Advice and Insights.
0: Thank you for listening to our Advice and Insights podcast with David L. Bonson. The Bonson Group is registered with Hightower Securities, LLC, member FINRA and SIPC, and with Hightower Advisors, LLC, a registered investment advisor with the SEC. Any opinions, news, research, analyses, prices, or other information contained in this research is provided as general market commentary. It does not constitute investment advice. The team in Hightower shall not be in any way liable for claims and make no express or implied representations or warranties as the accuracy or completeness of the data and other information or for statements or errors contained in or omissions from the obtained data and information reference herein. The data and information are provided as of the date referenced. Such data and information are subject to change without notice. This document was created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed are solely those of the team and do not represent those of Hightower Advisors, LLC, or any of its affiliates.